Chapter Four, Part E of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter Four, Part E. While everyone, except possibly General Thario and others in similar position, was enjoying the new comrade-in-arms atmosphere the abortive war had brought on, a sudden series of submarine attacks on the Pacific fleet provided a disagreeable jolt and ended the bloodless stage of the conflict. Tried and proved methods of detection and defense became useless. The warships were nothing more than targets for the enemy's torpedoes. In quick succession, the battleships Montana, Louisiana, Ohio, and New Hampshire were sunk, as were the carriers Gettysburg, Antietam, Guadalcanal, and Chapultepec, as well as the cruisers Manitowoc, Baton Rouge, Jackson, Yonkers, Long Beach, Evanston, and Portsmouth, to say nothing of the countless destroyers and other craft. Never had the Navy been so crippled, and the people, presaging correctly a forthcoming invasion, suffered a new series of terrors, which was only relieved by the news of the Russian landings on the California coast at Cambria, San Simeon, and Big Sur. "'What did I tell you? What did I tell them, the duffers and dunderheads? We could have been halfway across Asia by now.' Instead, we waited and hammed and hauled till the enemy, from the sheer weight of our inertia, was forced to attack. The whole crew should be court-martialed and made to study the campaigns of Generals Shafter and Wheeler as punishment. General Thario's always precise handwriting wavered and trembled with the violence of his disgust. An impalpable war, pregnant with annihilating scientific devices and other unseen bogies, was one thing actual invasion of the sacred soil over which old glory flew and by presumptuous foreigners who couldn't even speak english was quite another at once the will of the nation stiffened and for the first time something approaching enthusiasm was manifest cartoonists moved by a common impulse unanimously drew pictures of uncle sam rolling up his sleeves and preparing to give the pesky interlopers a good trouncing before hurling them back into the pacific unfortunately the presence of the grass prevented quick eviction of the unwelcome visitors only a small portion of the armed forces was based on the pacific coast because of the logistical problems presented by inadequacies of supply and transportation of these, only a fraction could be sent to the threatened places for fear dispersions of the main body would prove disastrous if the landings were faint. Thus the enemy came ashore practically unopposed at his original landing points and secured small additional beachheads at Gorda, Lucia, Morro Bay, and Carmel. East of the grass there were whole armies who had completed basic training, fit and supple. The obvious answer to the invasion was to load them on transports and ship them to the theater of operations. Unfortunately, the agreement not to use heavier-than-aircraft was an insuperable bar to this action. That the pact had never been designed to prevent nations from defending their soil against an invader was certain. Thousands of voices urged that we keep the spirit of the treaty and disregard the letter. No one could expect us to sit idly by and let our homeland be invaded because of over-finicky interpretation of a diplomatic document. But in spite of this clear logic, the American people were swept by a wave of timidity. 
If we use airplanes, they argued, so will the Russians. Airplanes mean bombs. Bombs mean atom bombs. Better to let the Russians hold what advantage their invasion has given them than to have our cities destroyed, our population wiped out, our descendants, if any, born with six heads or a dozen arms as a result of radioactivity. According to General Thario, for a while it was touch and go whether the President would yield to the men of vision or the others. But in the end, apprehension and calculation ordained that every effort must be made to reinforce the defense of the West Coast, except the effective one. Of course, every dirigible was commandeered, and work speeded up on those under construction. Troop ships, heedless of their vulnerability, rushed for the Panama Canal, while negotiations were opened with Mexico, looking toward transporting divisions over its territory to a point south of the weed. While confusion and defeatism took as heavy a toll of the country's spirit as an actual defeat on the battlefield, the Russians slowly pushed their way inland and consolidated their positions. The American units offered valiant resistance, but little by little they were driven northward until a fairly fixed front was established south of San Francisco from the ocean to the bay, and a more fluid one from the bay to the edge of the grass. Army men, like the public, were suspicious of the enemy's apparent contentment with this line, for they reasoned it presaged further landings to the north. General Thario's jubilation contrasted with the common gloom. At last the blunderers have given me active duty. I have a brigade in the Third Army, finest of all. Can't write exactly where I'm stationed, but it is not far from a well-known city noted for its altitude, located in a mining state. Brigade is remarkably fit, considering, and the men are rearing to go. Keep your ear open for some news. It won't be long. The news was of the heroic counter-landings. The entire fleet, disdainful of possible submarine action, stood off from the rear of the Russian positions, bombarding them for forty-eight hours preliminary to landing marines, who fought their way inland to recapture nearly half the invaded territory. Simultaneously, the army, below San Francisco, pushed the Russians back and made contact at some points with the marines. The enemy was reduced to a mere foothold but the whole operation proved no more than a rear-guard action. As General Thario wrote, We are fighting on the wrong continent. Joe was even broader and more emphatic. It's a put-up job, he complained, to keep cost-plus plants like this operating. If they called off their silly war, Beethoven down in the cellar during the siege of Vienna expresses the right attitude, and went home, the country would fall back into depression, we'd have some kind of revolution, and everybody be better off. I had suspected him of being some kind of parlor radical, and although he would doubtless outgrow his youthful notions, it made me uneasy to have a crank in my employ but beyond urging him to keep his ideas strictly to himself and not leave any more memo pads scribbled over with cleft signs on his desk, I could do nothing, for upon his retention depended his father's good will. The general's assignment to a field command hadn't altered the status of our contracts, and we had too many unscrupulous competitors to rely solely upon merit for the continuance of our sales. George Thario's attitude was symptomatic of the demoralization of the country, apparent even during our momentary success. There was no will to victory, 
and the general staff, if one could believe General Thario, was too unimaginative and inflexible to meet the peculiar conditions of a war circumscribed and shaped by the alien glacier dividing the country and diverting normal operations into novel channels. So the new landings at Astoria and Longview, though anticipated and indeed precisely indicated by the flimsiness of the Russian resistance to the counteroffensive, caught the high command by surprise. Never was a military operation more certain, wrote General Thario, and never was less done to meet the certainty. Albert, if a businessman conducted himself like the military college, he would be bankrupt in six months. Wherever the fault lay, the American gains were wiped out, and the invaders swept ahead to occupy all of the country west of the grass. Boastfully, they sent us newsreels of their entries into Portland and Seattle. They established headquarters in San Francisco and paraded 40 abreast down Market Street, renamed Krasny Prospect. The Russians also renamed Montgomery Street and Van Ness after Mooney and Billings, respectively, but for some reason abandoned these designations almost immediately. But for all their celebrations and 101-gun salutes, this was as far as they could go. The monstrous growth which had clogged our defense now sealed the invaders off and held them in an ever-shrinking sector. Now came another period of quiescence in the war, but a period radically different in temper from the first. There were many, perhaps constituting a majority, who, like George Thario, wanted a peace, almost any kind of peace, to be made. Others attempted to ignore the presence of a war entirely and to conduct their lives as though it did not exist. Still others seemed to regard it as some kind of game, a contest carried on in a bloodless vacuum, and from these to the newspapers and the War Department came the hundreds of plans, nearly all of them entirely fantastic, for conquering an enemy now unassailably entrenched. But while pessimism and lassitude governed the United States, the intruders were taking energetic measures to increase their successes. "'I have been present at the questioning of two spies,' reported General Thario, "'and I want to tell you the enemy is not going to miss a single opportunity unlike ourselves. What they have in mind I cannot guess.' They can't fly over the grass any more than we can, as long as they want to conciliate world opinion, and I doubt if they can tunnel under it, but that they intend to do something is beyond question. Often the obvious course is the surprising one. Since the Russians couldn't go over or under the grass, they decided to march on top of it. They had heard of our pre-war snowshoe excursions on its surface, and so they equipped a vast army with this clumsy footgear and set it in motion with supply trains on wide skis pulled by the men themselves. Russian ingenuity, boasted the Kremlin, would succeed in conquering the grass where the decadent imperialists had failed. It is unbelievable. You might even call it absurd, but at least they are doing something not sitting twiddling their thumbs. My men would give six months' pay to be as active as the enemy. To be sure, they are grotesque and inefficient. So was the army of Italy. Imagine sending an army, or armies, if our reports are correct, on a six-hundred-mile march without an air force, without artillery, without any mechanized equipment whatsoever. 
unless, like the army of Italy, they have a Bonaparte concealed behind their lunacy, they have no chance at all of success. But by the military genius of Joseph Eggleston Johnson, if I were a younger man and not an American, I would like to be with them just for the fun they are having. By its very nature, the expedition was composed exclusively of infantry divisions carrying the latest type of automatic rifle. The field commissaries, the ambulances, the baggage trains, had to be cut to the barest minimum, and General Thario wrote that evidently because of the impossibility of taking along artillery, the enemy had also abandoned their light and heavy machine guns. Against this determined threat, behind the wall of the Rockies, the American army waited with field artillery, railway guns, bazookas, and flamethrowers. For the first time there was belief in a Russian defeat, if not an eventual American victory. But the waiting Americans were not to be given the opportunity for hand-to-hand -hand combat. Since planes could not report the progress of the snowshoers over the grass, dirigibles and free balloons drifting with the wind gave minute-to-minute -minute reports. Though many of the airships were shot down, and many more of the balloons blown helplessly out of the area, enough returned to give a picture of the rapid disintegration of the invading force. Nothing like it had happened to an army since 1812. The snowshoes, adequate enough for short excursions over the edge of the grass, became suicidal instruments on a march of weeks. Starting eastward from their bases in northern California, Oregon, and Washington, in military formation, singing triumphantly in minor keys, the Slavic steamroller had presented an imposing sight. Americans in the occupied area, seeing column after column of closely packed soldiers tramping endlessly up and over the grass, said it reminded them of old Prince of Pickett's charge at Gettysburg. The first day's march went well enough, though it covered no more than a few miles. At night they camped upon great squares of tarpaulin, and in the morning resumed their web-footed way. But the night had not proved restful, for over the edges of every tarpaulin the eager grass had thrust impatient runners, and when the time came to decamp, more than half the canvases had been left in possession of the weed. The second day's progress was slower than the first, and it was clear to the observers the men were tiring unduly. More than one threw away his rifle to make the marching easier. Some freed themselves of their snowshoes, and so, after a few yards, sank, inextricably tangled into the grass. Others lay down exhausted to rise no more. The men in the balloons could see by the way the feet were raised that the inquisitive stolons were more and more entangling themselves in the webbing. Still the Soviet command poured fresh troops onto the grass. Profiting, perhaps, by the American example, they transported new supplies to the army by dirigibles, replacing the lost tarpaulins and rifles, daringly sending whole divisions of snowshoers by parachute almost to the eastern edge. This last experiment proved too reckless, for enough of these adventurers were located to permit their annihilation by long-range artillery. Their endurance is incredible, magnificent, eulogized General Thario enthusiastically. They are contending not only with the prospect of meeting fresh, unworn troops on our side, but against a tireless enemy who cannot be awed or hurt 
and even more against their own feelings of fear and despair, which must come upon them constantly as they get farther into this green desert, farther from natural surroundings, deeper into the silence and mystery of the abnormal barrier they have undertaken to cross. They are supermen, and only supernatural means will defeat them. But there was plenty of evidence that the general credited the foe with a stronger spirit than they possessed. Their spirit was undoubtedly high, but it could not stand up against the relentless harassment of the grass. The weary, sodden advance went on slower and slower, the toll higher and higher. There were signs of dissatisfaction, mutiny, and madness. Some units turned about to be shot down by those behind. Some wandered off helplessly until lost forever. The dwindling of the great army accelerated. Airborne replacements dependent on such erratic transport failed to fill the gaps. The marchers no longer fired at the airships overhead. They moved their feet slowly, hopelessly, stood stock still for hours, or faltered aimlessly. Occasional improvised white flags could be seen, held apathetically up toward the balloonists. Long after their brave start, the crazed and starving survivors began trickling into the American lines where they surrendered. They were dull and listless, except for one strange manifestation. They shied away fearfully from every living plant or growth, but did they see a bare patch of soil, a boulder, or stretch of sand, they clutched, kissed, mumbled, and wept over it in a very frenzy. End of chapter 4, part E